0: Which can make people uncomfortable. But discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes, and join me as we begin our Thousand Tiny Steps. Hey everybody, Laura Piggins here, beginning episode thirty of my podcast, A Thousand Tiny Steps. If you're watching, I'm in a messy hotel room as you can see. Lighting is a little weird. I've tried every different angle and this is the best. The windows ahead of me. I'm looking out At the same swimming pool I was looking out the last time I recorded a podcast in this hotel. Different room, different lighting. I'm recording this on March 21st. It won't come out to you until the beginning of April, but both of these weeks are significant. Jack turned one yesterday, and the first week of April is April 1st, and when Molly would be turning 19. This is the time of year where we sort of begin the countdown to what we often call the beginning of the end of Molly. Once we knew that 2016 would only last four full months for her, Once that happened, the next year in 2017, so a year later, every day was a stark reality that it was the last one of those days she would ever have. From May 8th of 2015 all the way through, those were her last ones. But New Year's Eve of 2015 into 16, things were really bad at home for us. Kenny and I were able to put our fight on pause. We used to hit the pause button so that we could just live life. We gave the girls a really good Christmas, but things were terrible. I was all caught up in the job at that was swallowing up my time and I was drinking a ton and things with Roy were really rough. Everybody was angry at Barb or Barb was angry at everybody or pissing everyone off. But midnight on New Year's Eve, going into 2016, we all put our hands one on top of the other, you know, that we're going to have a great year. It's going to be a great year. And we're watching a Taylor Swift video And 2016 was going to be this great year. And it was just this awful year. It was a terrible, terrible year. As we get into March, now March is exciting now because Jack Jack's arrival, but Time becomes tricky for those of us in grief and, you know, recovering from (laughs) traumatic loss, like a child loss, or if you're a child losing a parent, any loss that shouldn't happen in the logical order of things, in my mind, is a traumatic loss. Also, how you lose someone. So this is a rough time anyway. I was going to record this yesterday on Jack's birthday. Jack got sick. He wasn't feeling well. You know, it just, whenever I'm traveling and I try to get work done, it always ends up getting crammed into the last three hours of the stay. (laughs) Oh, well. Anyway, but I was in a funk. I was having a really hard time. I did some, I got some work done on Friday, did some VLACs and, and got some work done. And I was communicating with my editor and we communicate back and forth and plan really, really in a very organized fashion, which is good for me because I can follow into structure. I don't create structure well. And we often try to acknowledge what's hanging us up or holding us up. And for me, it was just grief. I'm just having a really bad grief day. It's really hard. I just want, I freaking want Molly back and I want certain things in my life that I had that time back. And you can't go back. And so it doesn't always mean that we're good. We grievers are good at dealing with it. So I was off to a rough start anyway in thinking about how I wanted to talk in this episode. And then a couple of articles were brought to my attention on Friday, later in the day, and a bit on Saturday. And they absolutely touched my heart and really, really spoke to me. So one of them was my good friend, Taylor. I've talked about Taylor. She owned a store in Amesbury called The Nest. And that's where I met her in her store. She's become you know, a really good friend and, and she also suffered the loss of a child. And so she understands so much what this grief and trauma is like. She's further along in her journey than I am in mine. And so she has a better handle on clinging to the joyful times than I do. You know, she put posts pictures of her dogs and bunnies and pets and things. And she designs beautiful plants and all those kinds of things. And so I sometimes scroll her page looking at her pictures when I'm feeling blue because it cheers me up. These are the little things we learn to do. She had posted an article by a dad whose son's name was Mitchell and Mitchell died nine or 10 years ago now, maybe even more so. His dad was talking about leaving room for grief and how difficult it was for him to be criticized and judged, so to speak, on how slowly he was getting over the loss of his son and, and that he needed, you know, they're there now, you're fully yourself, you're just, you know, glorifying the grief. And there were two or three things, you know, friends that made comments to him that they thought were helpful, also thought that it was their sort of place to say, look, enough already, stop, stop being sad. The time has come to put it away and move on. And, you know, my response to that is, as long as you love somebody, you're going to grieve their loss. We don't get over our live children. We don't stop calling them on the phone when they turn 18 and go off to college. We don't just cut ties. Okay, you're grown up now. I'm never talking to you again. I'm going to get over having you now. That's not even logical. Well, neither is getting over a child that's died because that's your child. If you're a mom or a dad, it matters not. You will ache for and miss and want your child back for the rest of your life. That's just reality. So that article really resonated with me because I oftentimes hold myself to a high standard like I'm I'm being too sad or I better not say anything that won't upset the apple cart. And I also have had some pretty rough experiences with people meaning well, I think, and just telling me it's time. I talked about how family members have a hard time supporting each other because they need the support. You know, Kenny and Gracie and I aren't always necessarily the best support for each other when we're sad. It's just one of those things. So in this article about Mitchell's journey, so Mitchell had a chronic illness and he died much earlier than they thought. And so it was a surprise to his family. And so what happened with this dad, and this relates to me having a hard time right now, March 21st, you know, 366 days into Jack-Jack's life outside my tummy. He wrote, when there's no room for grief. A few years ago, I was cleaning my inbox and stumbled into a letter I wrote my family the night Mitch passed away. I wasn't expecting to see it. So when I saw the headline, Mitchell passed away, I was immediately swept up by a tidal wave of tears. After gaining my composure, I began a journey through time, reading emails sent the weeks following our son's passing. So one little trigger and boom, you're right back, you're right back into the thick of it. Along with Molly's death, the triggers attached to her connect to anything that was going on in my life at the time of her death. I know for me, I want so much to just morph myself back into that spring of 2016 and do things over and fix things and make different decisions. And I can't, of course. One of the things that somebody said to him was, now that the worst is over, dot, 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 meaning already right, he's finally died. So he's, he's not sick anymore. He's dead. The worst is over. No, the worst is just beginning. And when I read those words, I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Death was the beginning of the worst. And he wrote, everything was just beginning. In matters of grief, especially the loss of a child, hell happens in the aftermath of death. And then he says it again. Hell happens in the aftermath of death. That is absolutely right. Absolutely right. I have a wonderful life with wonderful things. And when I say my life is a living hell, it does not diminish or get rid of the wonderful things. It's a parallel existence. The two things exist side by side. I am happy and I'm sad. I am joyful and I'm broken. It'll never be either or. Some days it fills up quicker on the joy side. Some days it fills up quicker on the hell side. So he goes on to say two years later, he's, you know, he's driving across the country with his son to go surfing and somebody else says, look, I'm just sending you an email because I feel like you, you know, I need to give you some feedback. He had made his blog site public. It was like a private journal for him and he made it public. Like me doing the podcast, I mean, anyone who knows me knows I love to talk, but I'm not doing this so I can listen to myself talk. I get exhausted sometimes by doing these podcasts, but I do know that I get feedback from people that don't have the gumption to say it out loud or don't know how to say it out loud or don't want to. They get things from these podcasts that that are helpful to them in their journey. And that really, really is what I needed in the beginning and what I feel like I can offer to others. She was convinced I was stuck in grief and that I needed to move on. Move on no, we don't move on from being parents. We're parents until the day that we die. There's no moving on. You move along. He talked about the fact that he was moving on. He was driving across the country with his child and doing these things and trying to live life as best he could. The whole article here was about the things that people say that are so unhelpful. The worst one for me is you should be happy. You have happy memories. You know, when you think of her, that should make you happy. Well, <laughs> Of course, I have happy memories, but they just remind me that she's gone, which makes me sad. And she isn't here. The other one is like, well, she'll be waiting for you. And well, okay, but or life is just the blink of an eye when you think of eternity. Well, no, life is eternity. It's a long, slow journey. I'm probably have 40 years left, which I want to have left because I have Jack-Jack, but that's 40 years of waking up every day and just seeing it all in front of me. Some of the comments I got when I posted this, so it was on Taylor's page and it was wonderful because it was She's somebody that we connect with. And I saw it, so I shared it on my page. And so I had my friend Tammy. It has been 16 years since my son was killed. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is even 16 years later, I still hurt every day. My beautiful beau is never out of my mind, never. That's my friend Tammy. So we talked about that a little bit. And then my friend Deb, who lost her son, almost 12 years since my sweet Stephen transitioned. You don't get over grief. You make room for it in your heart and in your life. You make room for it. That's exactly right. And my uncle Nathan, whose son, Molly's cousin Caleb, died in 2011. I have found that if I don't make room for grief, it will take up all the room I have. Does it take up less room in my life now than it did 11 years ago? No, it just mingles more easily with the rest of the emotions of life. I can't even read these without crying because it's just so true. And anyone that doesn't understand it really is truly lucky because when you have a a hurt that consumes every fiber of your being, it's all that you feel all the time. And you learn that the word but no longer exists. It's the word and I'm alive and I wish I wasn't. I'm happy and I'm sad. I grieve all the time. Those were some great comments to this to this article. And it's one of the big misunderstandings that somehow there's a right and a wrong way to grieve and that we aren't okay until we're not sad anymore. Well if that's the truth then I will never be okay again because I will always be sad. I will never not be sad about Molly dying. I'm learning to find joyful moments. I'm able to rearrange the house that is my soul so that more happiness can fit in and envelop itself around the grief. But the grief doesn't go away. It's impossible because Molly doesn't go away. My love for Molly, every memory I have stays forever. That article was an interesting thing. And then at the same time, actually my friend Tammy that commented on this commented on on the other article as well. So this article was written by, it was in the New Yorker. It was in a lot of places actually and it was called Prolonged Grief is Now a Disorder. Prolonged Grief Disorder is now officially recognized as a mental illness. So I have two feelings here on this. First of all, we have to eradicate the term mental illness. Mental illness, people automatically think of some crazy, incoherent person that needs to be locked up in a padded room somewhere. Mental illness, it has so much stigma to it, and I wish there was a way that we could say it that wasn't quite so confining, but the reality is mental illness covers every emotion we have. You know, when you're manic in bipolar disorder, you're wicked happy flying all around. <laughs> you don't think of somebody that appears happy as mentally ill, but that's what a mental illness is. And so, so for prolonged grief disorder to be considered a disorder is incredibly insulting on one level because it indicates that I have an illness, that something is wrong with me. Well, in one sort of narrow way, that, that's exactly what it does. And in our need to label... In order to provide, we define names and labels for things that we can then plug into an insurance company so that that insurance company will pay for treatment. It's an awful backwards way of thinking. All illnesses related to everything physical illness, emotional illness, mental illness, spiritual illness they're all a normal, natural part of the human existence. There's nothing wrong with a person for having an illness. It's like a judgment, and we don't belittle or belager or somebody who's got the flu. (laughs) We give them medicine to help them get better and give them ways to prevent getting it again. We take care of it. And with mental illness, sometimes when it's not explainable and we can't take care of it, it becomes this unmeasurable thing. So in the book, The Body Keeps the Score, trauma is also something that has long been sort of overlooked in terms of, of mental health support, giving people mental health. In that book, there was a whole study on trauma and the effects of trauma. PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So maybe it should just be post-traumatic stress because it's not a disorder to be stressed out by watching your child die or watching your house get blown up or watching your mother get hit by a car. Any traumatic thing that happens to you is going to cause stress. It is normal and natural, post-traumatic stress. But for it to receive any sort of VA benefits and paid counseling, it has to have the D on it. It has to be a disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder. And now that you've been labeled with the disorder, you're now labeled as an, and identified as sick and needing service. Now you can get it. Okay, I guess if that's what it takes, call me whatever you want. But grief is sort of now the same way. Instead of just, instead of just accepting the fact that grief is a normal, healthy reaction to, to loss of anything, we have to make it an illness so that we can then treat it. I think it's a very Western medicine way of thinking. And in the article, it talks about how they're looking at pills already and drugs and other things to treat it. Now, I'm not anti-pills or drugs either, believe me. I had anti-anxiety and antidepressants in my journey after losing molly and after losing my job i believe medication exists for very good reasons but it isn't the go to thing and sometimes one of the things that made them realize grief was its own thing was a study done on elderly people that were on antidepressants and the antidepressants took away the the symptoms and things of depression but when there were questions that related just to grief it didn't touch it the stark pain the sadness around the grief and the loss remained and it talked about how we've oftentimes react so unhealthy, like women wearing black for the rest of their life, because their husband's dead and they'll never ever have that kind of love again, that sort of thing. And that's considered unhealthy. prolonged grief. So part of me thinks, okay, this is a good thing, because it's going to be recognized as something that's tangible and real and not something that well, whatever, once, the, once they get over it, they'll be fine. Okay, no, one of the things that has helped me tremendously since Molly's death was my amazing therapist. I went to a psychiatrist named Elizabeth Moulton, and she was. Phenomenal. Really helping me deal with the traumatic loss of Molly and focusing on that trauma and doing EMDR and really, really being an open set of the ears and never once telling me I needed to hurry up and grieve ever, ever, ever at all. What bothered me the most was that they said that really prolonged grief would be, begin to be diagnosed after one year. One year. <laughs> One year, when I said that, when I shared that with Gracie, her response to me was, I still believe Molly was coming back for that whole first year. I just thought this can't be true. There is nothing prolonged about grieving longer than a year. My goodness, when we were in the hospital finding out that Molly wasn't going to wake up, the first thing, the first thing one of the, her surgical members said was, give yourself five years. Here's a physician who's worked with families who have lost children, who knows what he's talking about. Give yourself five years before life even begins to look normal. And he was right. In Mitchell's dad's article, when he wrote this article, he was about five years in, and he said it took four and a half to five years before he could even really begin to see things normally. Does that mean people don't need help? No. And if getting labeled is the only way that grieving parents can receive help in ways that they need it, that might be better at dealing with grief, then by all means, apply the label at a year. But how about just extreme grief? And there it is. And You can get diagnosed with it the day after your kid dies or the day your kid dies. Because it, it blows up right there. I try to use analogies a lot in how I feel about these things. And, you know, we wouldn't belittle a person who lost their leg to a shark bite for not being able to adapt to a prosthetic leg in a certain time frame. We would know that each leg is different and they would need as much time as they needed to learn to walk on that new leg. But, you know, we don't, we don't, maybe there's guidelines and we look, okay, an average person might be walking in a year, but there's always give and take and there's a lack of judgment in those things. And there's nothing abnormal about a leg that's been chomped off, you know, having all the issues and phantom pain and all the things go along with amputation. From the medical point of view, we accept what we know is true and we work around what we know. With something like grief, really there's so much that we don't know and it's so different. It's not like one leg versus another leg. It's completely different. People's religious beliefs play into it. The circumstances around their death. So any child death is traumatic, but I do know in my experience, the parents that suffer sometimes the most, Or parents who lose their children to suicide because there's enough blame, even when it's obviously somebody else's fault or nobody's fault at all, parents still blame themselves. I think probably in my experience watching people, the second thing that people suffer the most from is when their children are kidnapped or murdered and, and they have to ponder what that was like for their child and how horrifying that is. When I look at the responses and how long it takes people, these mothers and fathers are not weak, damaged individuals. They're struggling, struggling parents trying to make sense of, the, of something that makes no sense and never will. We're not supposed to lose our children. What the prolonged grief disorder thing brought me to was, I've mentioned I'm a special educator in Massachusetts and then New Hampshire, and I have certified to teach in both states. In Massachusetts, your child is categorized by how much time they need to succeed in class, how much time they need receiving special services, special ed services. Do they need to be monitored? Do they need some classroom modifications? Do they need direct instruction? Do they need special curriculum it was all by what they needed to succeed then they moved to new hampshire and somebody goes oh yeah well, my kids coded and i'm like coded what is what does that even mean it sounded it just sounded horrible horrible to me coded i'm going to code my child well in new hampshire it's not it's not how much time you need that determines whether or not you are qualify for special ed services it's your diagnosis are you adhd are you ld are you on the autism spectrum are you developmentally delayed Are you emotionally handicapped? There's a whole list of things. So parents have to, here's your child that's struggling in school and instead of saying, you know, if you agree that we can give him five hours a week of support, he can receive special ed services. No, 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 we say, well, you have to call him ADHD and then he can get the services or you have to call him learning disabled. They're labeled and it was, I found it really offensive at the time because I just felt like it was unnecessary. What was, I just thought that the way that Massachusetts did it was much more holistic. I don't know if it's that way now, this was in the 1980s when I first started teaching. But I do know that for children to receive services, they have to have a label that meets the criteria that the state has set forth for kids to be identified as, as a student with special needs. And this is under special ed law. And then there's Americans with Disabilities Act law, and that's completely different. And that's more, that's more based on what the teachers in the school need to do so the child can succeed. And it's often on medical issues. Hearing impaired students often need fabric on the walls to reduce echo and you know whatever a student might need, nursing services. Children with diabetes often have plans to make sure they're safe in school. That's a little bit different. So that came up for me and it, just, and it just made me wonder, why do we have to label everything? Why, why, why? But some of the things, people with prolonged grief are considered to have intense feelings and preoccupied thoughts that distress them or impede their daily functioning beyond the normal grieving process. Okay, well, I would like to know what's the normal grieving process because I don't think there is a normal grieving process. I think when, when something like that is thrown out, it's, grief is being looked at as something that you get over like a cold. You have a cold, you take the medicine, the cold goes away, you're over the cold. Okay, well, I lost a child. I took the medicine, I went for therapy, my kid's still dead. (laughs) All the medicine did was alleviate my symptoms. It doesn't take away what causes the grief. And then now let's look at grief. Okay, you can have a cold and you can have bronchitis and you can have asthma and you can have pneumonia. Very, very different levels of what might've started as a cold. So let's look at grief for a minute. So I have lost a lot of people in my life. I lost a good friend when I was 10. I lost another friend when I was in middle school. I lost a friend in high school that ran track with me. I've not been unfamiliar with loss. And I've lost grandparents. My biological father has passed away. All of those losses were traumatic. The the child loss, losing my best friend when I was 10, traumatized me for a long, long time. It was just the saddest thing ever. But I will say, when somebody comes up to me and says, oh, I understand. I understand your grief. My great-grandmother just passed away. She was 102. I understand that if you've had your entire life with your great-grandmother and she's lived that long and now she's gone, that would be a big loss but it's not an unnatural loss. Somebody's lived a hundred years. You know, every day you wake up, that their days are numbered because they're old. That's how things happen. Does that mean that death isn't traumatic? No, but it's not the same kind of trauma and will not produce the same level of grief that a child loss that losing a child produces because you're not supposed to lose the child and you don't wake up thinking today, my child's going to die. Those thoughts don't even come into your head. Then if you have a child that's sick for months and months and months, you play this whole unbelievable game of bargaining with God. Please, God, let me do this. Please, God, let me do this. Please, God, let me do this. Pray for a miracle, all of those things. One of the other hard things that's really hard for a lot of grieving parents is when somebody goes, Your prayers work. You know, it's a miracle. My child survived. And we all feel like, okay, so our prayers didn't work. So we must have failed. Did we not pray hard enough? Does God not like us? There is just so much unexplainable things that go into the grief process when it comes to child loss. In that article, that stood out to me a little bit. The DSM, which is the, it's a book that lists different mental disorders is often called the Bible of psychiatry. It's not only a guidebook for clinicians though, since insurance providers typically rely on the DSM to approve coverage for treatments for these various disorders. This is where the label gets you the coverage. How about your needs get you the coverage? The other thing that's really, really good for this is I wasn't able to go back to work for a long time. I borrowed money from people, we had a ton of money raised for us at the time of Molly's death and we parceled that out. So I was able to go almost a full year without any substantial income. I couldn't function, could not function. I could barely, couldn't function. Everything was, nothing was right. Everything was wrong. And everyone I had counted on had all but disappeared. And I know a million of you who love me know that I'm not talking about you, but in my day-to-day life, it was a disaster. I mean, I you know, I was just, it was gone. According to the APA, American Psychiatry Association, people with prolonged grief may experience intense longings for the deceased or preoccupation with thoughts of the deceased or in children and adolescents with the circumstances around the death. These reactions to grief would further affect them most of the day, nearly every day for at least a month. (laughs) A month. A month. I laugh just because whoever wrote this has not lost a child. And I realize that the psychiatrist that did write this is the first one to just say, look, let's take a much more serious look at grief. If it's grief that's causing high blood pressure, if it's grief that's causing all these physical ailments, if it's grief that's leading into addiction, then grief is an issue that needs to be dealt with. And I suppose here in America, we need to label it so that the insurance companies will approve it. It's on the list. In children, the DSM criteria notes, the condition can be diagnosed six months after the loss, while it can be diagnosed in adults after a year. And the APA also reminds clinicians that people's symptoms shouldn't be better explained by other conditions. So, well, she's depressed. Well, she was depressed before her daughter died, so she doesn't really have grief. Okay, depression and grief, two different things. I understand that this is good, but I'm sharing all this because it just takes grief and makes it like an illness, like it's something you can get over, including prolonged grief disorder in the DSM 5 TR, which I don't even know what that means. It's the book of terms. Will mean that mental health clinicians and patients and families alike share an understanding of what normal grief looks like and what might indicate a long term problem. Okay, this is so false. There is no normal grief and child loss is a long term problem. It's the rest of my life. So here, just looking at this makes my neck hair stand up. Yeah, we need information and awareness, but what I'm reading here isn't right at all. It's just very, very, I don't know, it just seems wrong. The gist of it is that they were talking about the one year period. The Jewish faith has a really good handle, handle on grief. I've always thought the Jews have it best. So there's, you sit for seven days or 12 days right after the death of, the, of a person. And then for a year, I think it's called sitting Shiva. I could be wrong. If I am, I apologize to my Jewish friends, but but you're you're allowed a year. Like, don't worry about it. A year. Do You do what you need to do for a year. Now, that doesn't mean on year two, day one, you're suddenly fine. But the, at least there's an understanding that at the very least, it's going to take a year before you can even sort of figure out where to start. As I said, Gracie, it took Gracie that long to just acknowledge that Molly really wasn't coming back. It took me a little bit longer because we were involved in the lawsuit. So all we were doing is talking about Molly being alive. But I will say that until we can look at grief as something that is a natural response to loss, then we're not going to be able to, Say there's a normal way to grieve. I would like to know, because I would probably be locked up. I grieve so desperately about Molly. Does it interfere with my life? Of course it interferes with my life. Am I still succeeding in things? Yes. Am I living the life I want to live? No, but I can't. The life I want to live will never exist again. And so I have to create a life that I'm comfortable living. I do know as people go along in their grief, my good friend KK, my spiritual mentor, she's had 40 years of living since her mom died. But I also know that One little trigger can put her into tears for hours because that's her mom. And as good as her life is, it's been without her mom for always, always, always. I often use the analogy of a broken window. I'm looking at these beautiful hotel windows here. And if I were to throw a rock through one of them, the glass would break. There is nothing wrong with the glass. The glass doesn't have baseball came through me syndrome disorder. You know, it's a logical response to a baseball or a rock going through a window that the glass would break. Very normal reaction from the glass. Now it's a broken window. (laughs) It can't keep out the wind. It can't keep out the rain. It's dangerous. It has shards. It needs to be repaired. So it gets repaired. Is it the same window? No. The whole thing needs to get replaced. And now there's a new window there. And the old window, perhaps the glass is recycled. Perhaps the wood is recycled. Perhaps it's thrown away. If grief were that simple, then we would take the normal reaction, me being the broken window, and in order to repair me or fix me there has to be a new me because the me that's broken can't be fixed the window can't be fixed the glass can't be glued back together and i think grief is the same way sometimes where we have to take a look at things a new way you know take that broken window and set it to the side maybe take the glass out and make it a frame make it a mirror you know do something different with with what you once had and then you create something new and i know this sounds unbelievably simplistic and actually in my current mood and how I feel about my life right now. I'm not buying it at all, quite honestly. But there are so many in researching things for this podcast and really looking at what people think and what works and what doesn't. I think both of these articles illustrate startling realities around grief. They both illustrate that people don't really know what they're talking about until they've experienced it. Now, I'm going to focus on child loss grief, because to me, that's, that's like the motherload of grief. Losing a child doesn't diminish other griefs. I often say to people who people will say to me, I don't want to bother you, Barb, because my problems are nothing like yours. Well, OK, maybe they aren't. But if they're your biggest problems that you've ever had, then they're exactly like mine. I often say how losing my job was just as traumatic as Molly's death at the time. I reacted very similarly. I took to the bed. I couldn't get out of bed. I drank. I was a mess. I was just ruined for months and months and months over that job loss. I was grieving the loss of a life that I thought was mine and, and I couldn't, I actually still grieve that loss. I'm in the anger phase now, but both of these articles illustrate the fact that we really don't know anything about grief and really the people we should listen to. I'm going to listen to Mitchell's dad because Mitchell's dad's a few steps down the road from me. You know, he talks in this article about being a caterpillar and you have to transform to the butterfly and how slowly caterpillars move. Well, you're darn right. He's a caterpillar and he gets to be one of the best analogies that I know from someone who hasn't lost a child was Cindy Flanagan, who, who said to me, you know, grief is like a highway, Barb, and people are going to get to their different exits more quickly than others. You know, and so if grief is a 50 exit highway, I'm probably at exit three right now, whereas Molly's friends are probably at exit 40. You know, it's different depending on who you are and what the loss is to you and how, and how the trauma affects you and where you are in your life and who the person was in your life. How quickly you go up the highway is very different. There is no normal way to grieve unless we're talking about grieving the loss of something that you knew you were going to lose, that you had time to prepare to lose, and that you had thought ahead of time of how you might move along or get over the loss. You know, people oftentimes, you know, people lose pets and then they don't get new pets for a long while because they just aren't ready. And then they finally are ready and people immediately assume you're replacing your, your dead puppy with a new puppy. No, you remember your dead puppy and you have a new puppy. It's not, it's not an either or situation. Child loss and traumatic grief and trauma are not things that people get over. There is no cure. Is this a death knell for me? Is this like, oh, this is so terrible? No, it's just the truth. And if we could put some, some positivity into the truth, if we could be supportive to those who need us in their truths, then life is much better. I get incredible support from my angel moms, I call them, because they get it. They just acknowledge, no, this is how I feel. You know, reading all those comments to the article. Knowing that if I was having a really bad day, I could call any of those people on the phone and they would know just what to say. And sometimes what they would say is, I don't really know what to say, but I'm right here understanding what you're going through. You know, that's much more accurate in terms of grief than labeling it a disorder. Now, what I hope will happen from this diagnosis, from this label, is that parents can have extended time off from work. They can apply for disability, even temporary disability, because... Not being able to work is a huge problem. The number of people I know that have lost their jobs because of grief are too many to count. So to be able to just stay home. I have a friend who actually recently is on disability for I think other reasons, but this is a really good diagnosis for him because he's lost a child. And I know that when he lost his son, his life took a hard left turn for the worse. And why wouldn't it? You've lost a child. And it just brings back everything. Every unfinished conversation and everything that was difficult becomes impossible. The other thing it does, is, at least for me, this is how I feel. In my life, various people in my life have have had different expectations of where I should be in my grief. People have disappeared and come back and disappeared and come back. And I've talked about Roy quite a bit because Roy was such a huge part of Molly's death. Everything that was going on in my life at that time, he was a very integral piece of the puzzle. And he was one of the first to say, all right, enough, enough time, enough. It's time to be over this. It's time to move on. It's time to clean and get over it. You know, I can't. I can't wait anymore. And You know, there's a part of me that just gets really angry about that. Like, you know, when I needed you the most, it was an inconvenience. That's how it feels to me. I'm quite sure if he were willing to talk about it, he would disagree that he was impatient. But that's what it felt like to me. I don't even think I'd taken a bath yet. I had a really hard time with the bathroom. (laughs) Yeah, I waited a year. (laughs) Molly was just so sick. It's where she spent the last night in our house on the bathroom floor, puking and puking. And I just couldn't go. I didn't go up there for a long time. And I went into labor in the downstairs shower with Molly because we didn't have an upstairs bathroom yet. So neither of those places, were, I would go in, go to the bathroom and get out of there. So I don't know that I had actually really bathed at home yet, maybe once or twice. I would just get in the swimming pool every day and you know, use a lot of deodorant. I used the garden hose, <laughs> shampoo my hair, bathe myself in the driveway in my bathing suit. I did that for a long time. So to move on from losing Molly, not even, weren't even two months out yet, was impossible for me. Maybe that's how he would deal with it if he had lost one of his children. Maybe he would he would pack it away and move on. You know, there's a lot there is a lot of logic to they're never coming back, but that isn't doesn't even make sense for a long time. It took me It took me, let's see, two and a half years. So I would easily be diagnosed with prolonged grief disorder on May seventh of 2017. Not a problem. I was still not functional at all at that time. I wasn't working yet. I had not returned to any semblance of normal life. Trying to hold Gracie together was the most normal thing I did and go to therapy, I guess. And then 2008, 17 to 18 was the really hard working times during our lawsuit. And when we settled that lawsuit in June of 2018, that was two years and a month. And that's when it finally sunk in. The reality was, all right, she's never coming back. It's over. It really is over. What now? And the what now, I think is is in my mind, what the medical professionals would be looking at as Criteria for being over grief: being able to say, "Okay, I've accepted this, and and what do I do now?" There's five stages of grief. Elizabeth Kubler Ross has talked about the five stages of grief, and there's a really funny five stages of grief giraffe. It's a little funny cartoon. <laughs> I used to show it in my health class. There's depression. There's bargaining. There's denial. There's anger, and there's acceptance, and all of those things circle around. And in the first two years that Molly was gone, I had bargaining. I had denial, huge amounts of denial. And I had depression. Those three. Anger and acceptance took me a while. I had anger. I had moments of anger, but I medicated myself so heavily that I just never felt it. I didn't allow myself to. I've been very angry. Having Jack, and this won't make a lot of sense because Jack is a bundle of joy, but I always say babies are truth makers, truth bringers. They bring the truth. Having Jack has brought a lot of things into stark reality for me. Things that I've just sort of put off to the side that I haven't dealt with conversations Kenny and I should have, conversations Roy and I should have, I suppose conversations David Parker and I should have. That job and and how much it swallowed me up in the months leading up to Molly's death, you know, some of my biggest guilt comes around the hours and hours and hours I spent not with my child. And again, that's not anyone's fault. It was the reality of my life at that time. But I just often find that the universe gives me what it needs to give me when I need to get it. You know, coming down here, I knew I had to record a podcast down here. I knew that I was coming to see Gracie. So we're here because we wanted Gracie to spend Jack's first birthday with him. Easier for her for us to come down, not easier for us necessarily. You know, I had some ideas on what I talk about, but I wasn't 100% sure, quite honestly. And, and then these two articles were presented to me, not even out of the blue. What they are so that you can look for them is there is a foundation page called Mitchell's Journey. It's on. There's a Facebook group and there's a website. And Mitchell's dad is the one that started this. He just shares his stories is like I'm trying to do with mine to make people feel better. And then the article that I referenced is Prolonged Grief Disorder is Now an Officially Recognized Mental Illness. The New York Times had a post on it, which was actually a bit better than the one I'm looking at. Yeah, moving forward after child loss. How long should it take to grieve? Psychiatry has come up with an answer. The new diagnosis, Prolonged Grief Disorder, was designed to apply to a narrow slice of the population who are incapacitated, pining and ruminating, a year after loss, an unable able to return to previous activities. The psychiatrist that came up with this, her name is Dr. M. Catherine Shear. She developed a 16-week program of psychotherapy. This doctor has come up with a 16-week program that sounds to me a lot like trauma therapy, like EMDR. That what it does is it basically strengthens the handles on the bag of grief that we grieving people will carry around forever. So she's had good results, and it's not because they get over anything. It's because they learn how to mitigate and manage the grief. Measured at the year mark, this doctor feels that the criteria would apply to around 4% of bereaved people. So if 100 people lost a child, only four of us would need help after a year. <laughs> That's just so unbelievably wrong. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting a little fumbly here, but, but both of these articles are relevant to me right now on March 21st, a year and a day after Jack's arrival and watching him become his own little self. Tick-tock, tick-tock into April and May. The other piece that's weird for this year is, so 2016 was a leap year. So there was a February 29th. So there wasn't this year, but February 28th was on a Monday this year, which means March 1st was on a Tuesday, which is exactly how it was in 2016. Molly's birthday and Gracie's birthday will be on the same days. My whole Amsterdam trip, what we did on Monday will actually be on a Monday, like the days match. Sunday will be May 1st. We took Molly to the ER on a Sunday. These things might seem minuscule to some, but boy, do they, do they hit home because it's the exact day. So Mother's Day will be May 8th, one day after we unplugged Molly. And I, have to this day, refuse acknowledgement of Mother's Day. I know I'm still Gracie's mother and I'm still Molly's mother. And I should do this and I should do that and I should be better about it. Well, you're not me, <laughs> is what I say to people that try to give me a hard time about that. It's something I prefer not to focus on or pay attention to. I'm here in Florida, finishing up episode 30. There'll be one more episode in this season where I'll sort of wrap up my thoughts on trauma and grief and how we judge them and cope with them and deal with them in today's sort of Western society and how it's been for me and how I've done it. And then we'll get into season four, which I haven't quite wrapped my head around how I want to do yet. I might get back to Jack a little bit and update on that and Gracie and the things she's doing and what it's like to parent after losing a child 20 years after having them. But this has been a great visit. It's really hard for me to leave. I don't want to go. (laughs) But I also haven't worked out in five days and I actually really hate not being home and having my structure. Listen to me, having my structure, that's different for me. These two articles really were helpful to me in both feeling justified in the fact that I'm coming up on year six and I'm still just as upset as I was six years ago. And it's completely normal for me to be that way. And the fact that at least the APA is trying to look at grief as something that justifies and validates both disability payments from social security and disability, mental health. If you need a hospitalization, broken heart syndrome, there are all sorts of things that happen to us when we lose our our kids and or whomever. And the fact that this will be a diagnosable label for treatment, as ugly as it feels, is actually a good thing. So I'm going to finish up now. I'm going to spend the last few hours in sunny Florida before we make our way to the airport and head back home to Concord. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank you for always, always offering really good feedback. Read these articles if you like. Do something good for yourself <laughs> or not. Say hi to, say, Mary, say happy birthday to Jack-Jack, <laughs> sweet little buddy that he is. As always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Times Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Awesome. Please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at Barb underscore on Facebook as Barb Higgins and at my website, www1000